You're listening to the What's Best for Children's Nationality podcast. I'm Andy Clark, and in this final edition of the series, I'm joined by the director of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, Laura van Vaas. Laura, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Um, now, we made this series looking at uh, childhood statelessness. Um, what do you want to highlight in the series? I would like to highlight that many of us have forgotten something. We've forgotten that it is possible to grow up without a nationality. So many of us take our nationality for granted. But if you don't have a nationality, if you grow up as a child stateless, you are going to experience obstacles with almost every important milestone in your life, from going to school to getting help from a doctor to becoming an adult, getting a job and getting married. So this series is about impressing upon everyone the importance of paying attention to this issue. And why make this series now? Now is the perfect time to be talking about citizenship. We are trying to tackle many issues in the world today to ensure human rights, to ensure that no one is left behind as we work on the sustainable development agenda. We can't do that if we ignore citizenship and the role that it plays in protecting children. And in the series, we've looked at a number of countries as an illustration of, of why action is needed. And we're going to play some of those clips and talk around those in this final podcast today. So we're going to start off with a clip from the Nepal podcast. When I realized that I was stateless and the government does not recognize my identity just because we were raised by a single mother, it really felt bad. And then it it, it, it really felt... Um, I really felt discriminated and I really felt like the laws of our country was barring us from all the opportunities and, clo and closing all the doors and I could not pursue anything. So I felt like a prisoner inside my own country. Uh, Laura, who, who was that and what does this tell us? Well, that was Neha Gurung. She is a fantastic young woman from Nepal who was stateless, grew up stateless. And I think this clip tells us first and foremost that that was not her choice. It was something that happened to her and that she couldn't initially have any effect over. But it uh, was experienced as this terrible constraint on her feeling of belonging, her position within society, and she had to change some of her ambitions for the future in order to adjust to it. And this is what statelessness does to people? It does. It has a very deep impact um, in terms of access to rights and services. Uh, Neha really wanted to become a doctor, but she was unable to go to medical school because she didn't have citizenship. But it also really affects the child's sense of their place in the world. Imagine how you would feel if you grew up and suddenly realised that your own country or what you considered your own country didn't recognise you as a full member of society devastating especially for for children as well the idea of statelessness is devastating for anyone but for children it has even more impact absolutely and it's so often that just at that time in a person's childhood where they're learning about their own identity their place in the world the world around them that they will discover that their position is different perhaps from their classmates or their neighbors or others in their community and the impact of that on a young person is is really significant and will stay with them for life. In the series, we also heard from some of the world's leading experts on the topic. And here's a, another clip from earlier in the series. In the year uh, 2019, uh, in an ideal world, we shouldn't be talking about uh, stateless children. 
because the 1954 convention and the 1961 convention and the convention on the rights of the child have been here for a long period of time. So on the part of uh, those stateless persons, those stateless children, uh, and those of us uh, who are trying to amplify their voices, uh, there is a sense of urgency. We've just heard from Benyam Mesmore. He's a member of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and has been one of the international experts who has really stuck up for this issue of the child's right to nationality over the years. One of the other points that we try to emphasise to states is that statelessness is a reality for some, but almost a possibility for many, if not all. And uh, we try to uh, emphasise the point that in order to make sure that you have every I dot and every T crossed in your legislative, administrative and other measures in terms of preventing and addressing childhood statelessness, you don't need to have a significant number of stateless children within your territory. It's, it's an obligation that all those that have one or zero or one million stateless persons within their territory actually have uh, to address. So Benyam is making the point here that despite legislation, childhood statelessness is, is still a very real and present problem and there's a risk of it growing. That's absolutely the case. Uh, for most people, they will acquire a nationality when they are born from their parents. And if you have parents who are themselves stateless, then their children will also be born without a nationality. So unless we do something proactive to stop that, it is a problem that grows all by itself over the course of time. Throughout the series, we also heard about the devastating impact of uh, childhood statelessness. It, It really comes to the fore in the series. There were stateless infants, stateless toddlers, uh, stateless teenagers, stateless parents and stateless grandparents uh, living in some of the most atrocious conditions I have ever seen, um, living literally on a rubbish dump. What struck me was that uh, not having a nationality over generations, experiencing that form of discrimination and exclusion over generations was not something that was simply going to be resolved by giving someone a nationality. It was going to require a lot more than that because exclusion from nationality had meant exclusion from society in many, many ways, social ways, um, in political ways, in economic ways, and it had almost become a, a cyclical and very ingrained part of that community. That was Radha Govil, who works for UNHCR, the UN lead agency for action on statelessness, uh, explaining about the consequences. She also talked in our series about the need to change the approach on addressing childhood statelessness. I think in concrete terms, we are seeing change. I think that what has to happen is that rate of change needs to accelerate massively because it can. It, it requires political will. Um, the other things that it requires in terms of resourcing are not that difficult. Um, but I do think that, uh, that if we can keep going on the track that we are, but try and move it a lot faster, we will see much more significant change and hopefully in the next five years. So, Laura, do you agree with that significant change within five years? I think if we look back at where this issue was five years ago, we can say there's been a really significant change in terms of the visibility of the problem, uh, issue recognition, so we understand it to be a problem that we should be taking action on, and also the overall knowledge base that is helping to guide that action. Where we see less progress, unfortunately, is real meaningful change on the ground in terms of law and policy and practice. And if we're going to make more progress in the next five years, we really need to broaden the coalition of actors who are turning all of this knowledge into real positive progress. 
And what's relatively new is the relationship between UNICEF and UNHCR when it comes to tackling childhood statelessness. Is that going to have a big impact? I think so. I think it's really key for a child rights organisation like UNICEF to be coming on board. Uh, This issue falls squarely within UNICEF's mandate. The right to nationality is protected in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 7. And it's really fantastic to see the realisation within UNICEF and other child rights organisations that if they want to make progress in ensuring children's rights, they have to also look at one of the things that is causing exclusion, which is statelessness. And we asked Kerry Neal about the new partnership. There's a whole child rights constituency out there that previously was was not addressing this issue. We work with them in many, many countries. We can bring them with us and, and make them understand this as being an issue of, of child rights as opposed to just nationality rights. And I think the other advantage is that we generally both have different partners in national government that we work with, UNHCR, will tend to be working with ministries concerned with with immigration, interior, etc., whereas we have a whole range of relationships with ministries of education, ministries of health, ministries of social welfare. So we're very much able to bring comparative strengths together and bring a bit more of a whole-of-government approach to solving the issue when we're working together. I think that this recognition that we need to broaden the set of actors involved in the issue is something that is also shared by others. Uh, we heard it, for example, also from Benyam in his interview. Uh, those people that are uh, working on statelessness should not just be those that are the usual suspects. Uh, you don't need to be uh, an organisation which is just focusing on, which is focusing on statelessness and nationality to just be working on childhood statelessness. Those organisations that are working on children's rights need to come to the party. Those organisations that are working on women's rights need to come to the party. Uh, Labour unions have a very important role. Faith-based organisations have a very important role. So getting the circle bigger uh, and making sure that this issue is not just the bread and butter of few, but the bread and butter for many uh, is absolutely important. Okay, Laura, this all seems to be great. People coming together. What, but what's prompting this? What's behind these new organisations coming together to try and tackle childhood statelessness? I would say overall there's a growing realisation that this was a little bit of a blind spot among child rights actors. They were trying to address some of the problems that are caused by statelessness, but not necessarily the issue itself. And I would say that one concrete situation that has really uh, drawn attention to this issue has been the crisis in Syria. Uh, This is a situation which unfortunately is something of a perfect storm in terms of childhood statelessness because you have Syria as one of the countries that does not allow women to confer nationality to their children. You have mass displacement, family separation, loss of documents, destruction of documents and registries, uh, all manner of problems with access to civil registration for refugees in exile. And all of these things combined made it very clear to people working in the humanitarian and child rights sector that they needed to look at this issue of preventing childhood statelessness in order to protect against problems for, for the future. And Kerry Neal also talked about the impact and the influence of Syria when we talked to him in the podcast series. We have a long history of working on birth registration. Um, but I think in recent years, um, and in particular as a result of the large movement of people from Syria, we recognised that simply registering a child wasn't necessarily going to provide all of the protections that we thought and hoped it should provide. And that the next step on that was they needed to have a nationality. 
Um, and I say the, the Syria crisis brought this to a forefront because there was a large movement of people outside of Syria who, for whatever reason, were not able to transmit their nationality to their children, and it became very obvious. And we certainly focused on um, the situation in Lebanon when we did the podcast with the Norwegian Refugee Council there about the plight of the children of Syrian refugees. Yes, this is Martin Klutterbuck from the Norwegian Refugee Council. They run a big program in Lebanon and elsewhere on these issues. Well, there's so many issues and they're a lot related to um, complicated procedures, um, missing documentation, uh, fathers or husbands often who have gone missing in the war. There's no death certificate. There's no proof of death. It's, it's, uh, often there's no proof of marriage. A lot of marriages take place in Syria informally, not registered um, in the course of a conflict it's then really hard to prove to authorities that um, you know your parents were registered and uh, you know in 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 Syria and Lebanon in many countries in the in the region um, nationality comes for or in Syria nationality comes from the father so the existence of the father the whereabouts of the father um, the identity of the father the nationality of the father is really important um, so that presents a massive problem for for women for widows particularly as well in the series, we also looked at the situation in South Africa, where we heard from Liesl Muller from Lawyers for Human Rights. At the moment, a lot of children are at risk of statelessness because they don't um, have any documentation and they have migrated or they're abandoned and they've never been registered. So often it's children who are in situations that are not the nuclear family and they have problems with proving their nationality. Um, some other children are born in South Africa to refugees and when a cessation happens or when a parent dies, the child doesn't have a refugee claim and the country of origin doesn't recognize them as a citizen and that's how they can become uh, stateless in South Africa. One of the main points of the podcast series is to look at what's working when it comes to tackling childhood statelessness, um, hence the title, of course, What Works Best for Children's Nationality. In a nutshell, Laura, what did we look at? Well, in the South Africa example, as we just heard from Liesl, we heard about the use of strategic litigation to basically identify cases that if won in court would be a game changer and would force a change of practice or policy that helps many, many more children. That's what we mean by strategic litigation. Exactly. It's not just taking any case. It's really looking for the case that exemplifies a structural problem and trying to win that case. Can set a new precedent. Exactly. And we looked at two other countries. What were the lessons we were really focusing on when we looked at Syrian refugees in Lebanon and we looked at Nepal as well? Well, in Lebanon, the work that's being done with Syrian refugees is also being done by lawyers, I guess. Um, it's a form of legal support, but much more about empowering community members to know their rights and assert their rights and to navigate procedures that can be quite complicated and quite daunting if you don't know what those procedures are and what your rights are. And in Nepal, we looked at a very different type of technique, really around community mobilization. How do you change the narrative? How do you challenge the prevailing view that things are done in the right way? And how do you involve people who are affected in doing so? And that meant taking to the streets in Nepal, mass protests. Yes, exactly. OK, and here is uh, Deepti Gurung from Nepal, the wonderful activist that we talked to in the series. When we did, when we started the street protests, people actually physically started coming in, joining us, talked to us. They wanted to know more and more, 
and they as they were becoming aware more and more people joined in and people and the government had to see this uh, huge size of the people because physically it means a lot when you see the, you know virtual in virtual world there's a lot of noise but when a physical number of group of people when they all are in street up in arms then governments can really see the real force behind that powerful words there from from deep tea and i know she's also doing a lot with uh, with education this is another wonderful quote she shared with us uh, in the podcast series when i started this whole campaign i was really angry and i was really dissatisfied with the government officials those men with big mustache up there you know like you know all the time i was raged and i was angered and then i suddenly realized who are these people these people once upon a time they were children they were kids they were raised by this society you know and i it is difficult for me to change their mindset because they are like you know all matured and grown up but then i thought like no this little kids you know if they really know the true meaning of real gender equality these children you know they don't have any biasness against anybody else they love their mother and father equally both so i thought this is the right age i think i should approach to them because tomorrow they are the ones who's going to be on that seat who are going to be the change makers tomorrow there definitely is a blue sky for sure um laura these actions happening at national level um is this having a kind of resonance at an international level as well i think it is starting to and i think what's really key is that many organizations that are working at a national level have realized the important role that they can play in helping to raise visibility international internationally and to put the issue on the un agenda in particular through making sure that they're providing information to key international bodies like un and regional human rights mechanisms okay and this is lisel muller talking about exactly that So we've been very successful in getting very good recommendations from the Human Rights Council, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, the African Committee of Experts on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, the African Commission. So we've had a lot of success with getting the actual recommendations passed and of course our courts are in terms of the constitution forced to take those recommendations into account when they interpret human rights in a court case we see this combination of national efforts and international efforts in other settings as well in the series we heard from adam weiss from the european roma rights center so we're dedicated to enabling romani people to use their rights in court and out of court in order to uh, to combat discrimination what we're trying to do is support romani families in this situation to bring cases to court and what we're seeing is that the court procedures that exist particularly in the western balkans are not providing appropriate remedies for families in this situation so what we've started doing now is supporting romani families who are faced with this problem to go directly to international bodies with their cases we worked uh, over the past year to take a case against albania before the human rights committee in geneva and also a case against bosnia and herzegovina to the human rights committee in geneva so laura what do you want people to take away from the series I think what we've heard across the different podcasts is how diverse the issue is but also how global in its reach 
And so I hope that people are taking away some knowledge about what the issues are, but also a little bit of inspiration about the different types of intervention that are possible. There are lots of good things already happening. They just have to happen more in more places and uh, perhaps more effectively by having other actors join in. And what's next on the agenda for trying to tackle childhood statelessness? What's next for us is to really help to answer questions that perhaps child rights actors have as they start to look at this issue more closely, to share the statelessness specific expertise that already exists, but also to learn from them. What are the techniques that work on other child rights issues that we perhaps haven't looked at yet as people who are working to address childhood statelessness? And when you look back at the series itself, is there a particular story, a particular anecdote or a particular quote or something that really grabbed you and may, you know, crystallised the issue for you? We've heard some from some really wonderful people, some really powerful activists. But the quote that struck me was actually Liesl's telling about what happened when she heard about her client who uh, achieved citizenship. She told me that when she heard uh, the news about the court order that she was yelling in the store where she works, uh, yelling with joy. (laughs) And everybody wanted to know what was going on with her, but she was just laughing and and, um, she felt hope. This really sums things up for me. It's about helping people to be everything that they can be by taking away this obstacle, this bureaucratic problem of lack of access to citizenship that is constraining them and the idea that we can spread hope and lift the weight off people's shoulders through engaging on this issue uh, it makes it all worthwhile laura it's been really great talking to you and it's been great making the series together with uh, with the institute um how can people get in touch then you mentioned you want people to get in touch and make a conversation and bring this further so what's the best way people can do that The best way is for people to find us via our website, www.institutesi.org. You can find all the resources that we've produced around childhood statelessness and the child's right to nationality. And you can reach out to us through the website to share your own experiences or to ask us questions. And we'd love people to share the podcast, of course. It's available in all of the usual podcast places, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, you can get the What's Best for Children's Nationality podcast. So we'd love people to share that. And there are a couple of hashtags we've been asking people to use, hashtag nationality for children or hashtag for inclusive societies. And if you do share that, then, you know, include our Twitter handle, which is at institute underscore SI. So we really want to have a good conversation. So we encourage people to do that. Um, Laura, once again, thank you very much. And from me, Andy Clark, thanks for listening. <laughs>